You're listening to audio from Kingsway Christian Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit kingswaychurch.org. Well, good morning, everybody. It's so good to be here with you. You guys are live in crowd today. We want to welcome everybody watching at home online. And happy Mother's Day to all the mamas in the room, right? Yeah. Really glad you guys are here. So we're wrapping up our series called Reverse the Curse. This is the last one in the series. And so if you're showing up today, there's a, there's a lot of background to everything I'm saying. You won't miss anything, but there's more that you would get out of today's message. If you were to go back to Easter, start on Easter and watch every week going forward to today. I hope that makes sense. But uh, you don't have to get all that to get this. What we've been doing is looking at a family in the Bible in the book of Genesis, tracking a family's story and their baggage and what God has been doing to undo the curse of sin in their life and then consequently in ours. So today we're gonna find ourselves in Genesis 49. We're only gonna be there briefly, but if you wanna open your Bible to get there, that's fine because what we find is Jacob, this guy that we kind of tracked for a few weeks, he's on his deathbed and on his daddy's deathbed, he played this great trick <laughs> to steal this blessing from his dad, from his brother. Well, now he's on his deathbed and it's a matter of time before he goes and what happens is Joseph, this, his son, the Technicolor Dreamcoat Joseph, he shows up with his two boys, Ephraim and Manasseh, and he has dad bless them. And there's this cool, powerful moment where basically dad gives the birthright to Joseph. Then we get to chapter 49, that's chapter 48, chapter 49, he gathers the 12 tribes of Israel together and he pronounces this blessing over his sons one by one. And bless this son with this, and bless this son with this, and bless this son with this, and bless this son with this. And one of them, Judah, is prophetic in that it points specifically to Jesus. Really cool stuff. But then it says this in Genesis chapter 49, verse 28. All these are the 12 tribes of Israel. And this is what their father, that's Jacob, said to them when he blessed them, giving each the blessing appropriate to him. How many of you, and I'm just curious, because I'm going to guess it's not everybody, so don't feel bad, but I'm just curious, how many of you have read Genesis 48 or 49 before? A chunk of you, okay, not everybody, but a chunk of you. Did anybody ever read that and come to this verse and go, what? Because if you go back, and maybe you should do this later, you go back and read chapter 49, first of all, there are some things going on that are just cultural. This was thousands of years ago, so Things they considered a blessing then, you would not consider a blessing today and vice versa. So some of it, you read it and you go, that makes no sense. Well, for instance, in our culture, it's not real popular to have a lot of kids today. So 12 sons plus daughters to them was a huge blessing to you. You're like, why do you hate me, God? What is wrong? <laughs> so there's huge cultural issues, but there's also other things going on. Go read the words that he uses for his oldest son, Reuben. It's the first one. It is not a blessing. There's almost no way you can get a blessing out of what he says to Reuben. So he's lying on his deathbed and he's gathered his kids together and what he says to his oldest son is harsh. Now the truth is, it's true. See, if you don't know the story, Jacob's family is like Jerry Springer times the, the unrated version. Like, it is like, oh my goodness, is that really in the Bible? Anybody who thinks the Bible's boring didn't read it. Like, literally didn't know they were reading when they did. So Reuben is the oldest son of Jacob. Jacob has two wives because his father-in-law tricked him into marrying both of his daughters. You're like, see, already that's better than Jerry Springer. 
Then each of those wives gave their husband their maidservant so that they could have more kids. So the dude's got four women in his life, two wives, two concubine, and they're all one family. So all 12 of these boys come out of those four women. And his oldest son, Reuben, who's born to the wife that he doesn't love, ends up having relationships in the, you know, presidential sense with one of his dad's concubine. Are you following me? Yeah. Yeah. Ew. And so in his blessing in Genesis 49, Jacob rebukes him hard. But how's that a blessing? Well, the reality is there's a little bit of a nuance going on here. The Hebrew word for bless is the exact same word as the word for curse. Did you know that? Probably didn't. In the book of Job, if you don't know the story of Job, I love the, the, the book of Job. Because it says, there once was a man named Job. He came from the land of Ur, and he was a good, upright, and righteous man. In fact, the first chapter is going out of its way to prove to you Job's righteousness. So we're told that Job regularly worshiped the Lord and made sacrifices to God. Not only that, but he would actually wake up in the morning after his kids had a party the night before and make sacrifices for their party just in case his kids sinned the night before. Like this is how much Job loved God. And so in Job chapter one, Satan shows up in heaven one day and God says, hey, Satan, have you considered my servant Job? Satan is notorious for being our accuser. Satan is notorious for using his words to cut us down. And he shows up and God says, if you consider my servant Job, like, bring it. Here's an upright man, a man who loves me with all of his heart. And Job says, the only reason he's upright, the only reason he's faithful to you is because you've blessed him. He's healthy, he's rich, he's wise, he's got kids, a wife, you remove those blessings, he'll curse you to your face. Job chapter one, verse 10. And the word used there for the only reason he blesses you and he'll curse you to your face is the exact same Hebrew word. Interesting. So there's a nuance going on in Genesis 49 because here's the reality. Our words can be both blessing and cursing. Do you know that? In fact, there's a guy in the Bible, his name is James, and he wrote the book of James. It's real interesting. A guy, guy named Matthew wrote the book of Matthew. A guy named Jeremiah wrote the book of Jeremiah. A guy named Daniel. See where I'm going here? All right. So if you're ever wondering who somebody is, probably see if they wrote a book. All right. James chapter 3, verse 10 says this. And so blessing and cursing come pouring out of the same mouth. Surely, my brothers and sisters, this is not right. Why? Well, because James goes out of his way to say basically this, you and I and anybody you've ever met, it does not matter their physical capacity, their mental capacity. It doesn't matter if they're rich, poor. It doesn't matter if they dress like you or even dress nice. It doesn't matter if they bathe or they smell. It doesn't matter if they're young or old, male or female. If they are human, they're made in the image of God. So James goes on and he says, so when you use your tongue to hurt and destroy and to tear down, you're tearing down an image bearer of God. At the end of Genesis, Jacob has gathered his children together and he pours out 
to some a blessing, and to others, honestly, probably a curse. And I'm not saying he's right or he's wrong. I'm only saying we live in a world that is full of curses. We don't need more of them. In fact, have you noticed that today, um, you know you're getting older when you say, when I was a kid. (laughs) Well, when I was a kid, when I was a kid, uh, there were certain things you just didn't talk about publicly. But it was starting to change. When I was a kid, it was a really big deal that there were certain comedians that I won't mention by name who were coming out and they would use the most profane language and tell the most profane jokes. And comedy had just started to shift in that season. And as that shifted, TV shifted. And as TV shifted, movie shifted. As movie shifted, book shifted. And all that same time, uh, music shifted. And so now, things that you, you maybe, maybe talked about privately, but never in a, such an openly profane way, now was commonplace, commonplace in culture. We were listening to it. We were watching it. We were observing it. And honestly, it's like you almost can't get away from it. It's almost impossible to find music, movies, TV shows, that aren't about the profane in some way or another. And now that's culture, that's life. And as a consequence, we have literally taken other image bearers, like the ones sitting next to you, the ones you're married to, the ones in your family, and we constantly degrade each other with our words. We cut each other down, we hurt each other, we undercut each other, we criticize each other, and everybody's got an opinion on everything. Have you noticed that? And... Well, I'll leave that analogy out about opinions, but if you know it, (laughs) most of them stink. Did you know that in the mid-90s, a study was done, and the study showed that uh, teenagers, um, they did did a, a swab test to find out the stress levels of teenagers, and they found out that teenagers in the mid-90s were stressed to the same level, I believe it was Kids, teenagers, in the psychiatric ward in the 50s were. So the stress level of a teenager in the 90s matched the stress level of teenagers in the psychiatric ward only three to four decades prior. Let me just ask you a question. Do you think it's gotten better? Do you think in the last 15 to 20 years that we have less stressed teens? Why? I ran into a young girl uh, this morning. <clears throat> I may or may not have been picking up a Mother's Day card at Kroger. <laughs> Just saying. And uh, uh, last night was prom, and she didn't go. And I won't tell her story, but she proceeded to tell me why she didn't go. And then I asked a couple questions, and immediately her whole demeanor changed. And my heart thought of this illustration, and I thought, this poor girl. We live in a world of cursing. We're constantly being told we're not enough. We're constantly being shown we're not enough. We're constantly not measuring up. We're constantly cutting down, criticizing, undercutting, joking with, mocking, mimicking, you name it. There's an unbelievable amount of pressure and stress. And I wonder, I wonder, I wonder what would happen if there was a group of people who didn't live like that. I wonder what would happen if there was a group of people who said, you know what, out of this mouth, out of this tongue, is going to come blessing, not cursing. James goes on at chapter 3, a couple verses earlier, in verse 5, he says this. This is fascinating. He says, likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. 
Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. So those of you who've been here for a while, you know I lived in Colorado for 10 years. At one point, one of the doctors that I was seeing out there, my uh, personal care provider, he said, Matt, did you know that Colorado is the second driest state in the U.S.? I have no idea if he's right or not. I never looked that up. But I'll tell you this, it's really dry in Colorado, which people don't think of because they think snow. Well, it can't be that dry. It's extremely dry. That's why it's almost always yellow in Colorado. It's like one month out of the year. It's like, look, it's green. Oh, it's dead. Never mind. And consequently, it is forest fire city. And so there are constantly fire bans in Colorado. And when I was out there, early when I was out there in the early 2000s, they were in the second worst drought in Colorado history. They were calling it at that time. And I don't remember the specifics. So if I'm off at all, give me some grace here. It's been a while. I've slept a couple nights since then. But if I remember correctly, there was this massive forest fire and it literally torched, torched Acres and acres and acres and acres of Colorado forest. Homes were burned down. Firemen lost their lives. Some were sick. And it all started, if I remember correctly, of a one person who smoked a cigarette, put it out in their car, and then flicked it out the window. And one hot cigarette ruined tons of lives. And James says, you know, your tongue does the same thing. It's a small part of the body, but boy, is it huge. You know, it's funny. We spend millions of dollars, not you and me specifically, but Americans, we spend millions of dollars on workout equipment, fitness videos, whatever, you know, membership fees, whatever it is, countless hours. Some of us, maybe less than others, but we do, right? And here's the irony. The Bible says, you know, there's one muscle in your body that you need to let get weak instead of strong. <laughs> you need to let it go, right? Just let it go. And, and, and here's the irony of the whole thing. If you could get this one muscle to do what it's supposed to do, you'll actually keep all of your body in shape. In the very next verse, verse six, James actually says it this way. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body. Sets the whole course of one's life on fire and is itself, notice the way he says it's set on fire by hell. He's not pulling any punches, is he? What James is trying to say is simply this. See, it only takes one little fire and you can burn yourself pretty easy, right? But the tongue is not a little fire. It creates a little spark. Now, how do you create sparks back then? Well, they didn't have these nice little handy-dandy deals. They would usually take out like a flint or rock, something they could create friction, tension. So imagine two things smashing into each other and a spark goes flying out. And isn't that almost always when you use your tongue to tear somebody else down? And then what happens as a consequence? You light them and their life and your life on fire. Okay, so test time for a second here. Um, how many of you, let's just go back 48 hours, so let's say the weekend. How many of you this weekend at some point used your words to tear down, criticize, or hurt somebody you love? Let's just forget everybody else you don't like, just somebody you love. You don't have to raise your hand, all right? We won't embarrass anybody, but is that you? Some of you are like, oh, shoot, now he says it, all right. So, <laughs> is that you? Did you know, this has been so well documented, it's practically a scientific fact. Did you know that they have now shown that it takes Five encouraging words for an adult to every one criticism or negative word that they hear to counteract that thought in their heart. So for a husband and a wife, every time you use your word to criticize or to hurt or to tear them down, five. 
So just go back, let's just go back, say, four hours. Maybe to some time whenever you woke up this morning and it was chaotic and you were getting ready and it's Mother's Day. Now it's Mother's Day, you're on your best behavior. So it might be a bad example, but how are you doing with your words today? Have you said anything critical, negative of the people you love? Now here's what you can't do. You know this, right? You can't just go to them and say, oh, by the way, you're awesome, you're pretty, I like your shirt, I love you, your earrings are nice. Now, what's for lunch? (laughs) Nobody considers that believable, do they? No. It has to be authentic. Here's the point. Imagine you have a bucket, and your bucket has a hole in it. But the problem is that bucket is everything you need for life. It's where you're pulling your water out of. It's where you're taking a bath out of. It's, like, it's you're constantly needing water from this bucket. Well, if there's a hole in it, the hole's going to leak out. That's all the negative words you use. It's the fact that there's a hole, and anytime you criticize or use negativity, the water's going right out of that bucket. So what's the only way to keep the bucket full of water? You got to keep dumping in more water with me. When I was a a youth pastor and I knew everything there was to know about parenting, I wonder why I forgot all that stuff. Um, I had no kids then. That's the reality. And so then I learned later, I didn't know anything. But at that time when I thought I knew a lot, I remember one time I was at lunch with a friend of mine and he was married. He was a little bit older than me at the time. And he had, I believe it was three little girls. I'm trying to remember now. And uh, we were at lunch one day, and he was just telling me about the night before. And the night before, his oldest daughter was in some sort of school thing that was going on. I don't remember if it was a play or what. And so she was all dressed up. She had this part on the stage. And he just told me, like, at dinner that night, he was just looking at her. He's like, you know, honey, you're beautiful, and I just love your hair and the braids. And you, look, you just look so good. And, oh, you did such a great job. He was just going on and on and on. What a great job she did. And his other daughters jumped in when he was done and said, Daddy, 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 it's my turn. It's my turn. Do me, do me. Right? Every mom, every while I'm in the room, aw. Because every wife has felt that way. But did you know what? Every kid feels that way. Did you know that? Every kid feels that way. Are your words being used to fill your kid's bucket? Or are they being used more to cut and to slice? The same studies that show it takes five to one for an adult, do you know what it takes for a kid? Well, about a decade ago, they determined that it takes somewhere between 15 and 20 to counteract the negative messages that our kids are receiving. 15 to 20. I don't even know if I have that many words in a day. Okay, yes, I do. Who are we talking about? But uh, you probably don't, right? But did you know newer studies just came out that show it's now probably up to 25 to 30? It's not just because in our culture we want to create this place where kids just feel safe and there's no competition and all these things that we like to say that really aren't true. The reality is our kids live in such a critical, harsh, profane world that they need so much being dumped into their bucket for them to feel loved, valued. And the question I would have for everybody who's a parent, I know it's not everybody, but for everybody who's a parent, does your child feel delighted in by you? Do they feel adored and appreciated? Or do they feel like your words are constantly setting them on fire? Because here's the thing. James uh, goes and he says in um, James chapter 2, I'm out of of order on my notes, but I want to go here. James chapter 2, verse 12. He says this. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Because mercy triumphs over judgment. Just catch a little bit of what he's saying here. 
In the same way you give mercy to others, God will give mercy to you. Now, this brings up a great question. Pastor, I thought I was saved by grace, not by works. Absolutely you are. The Bible's crystal clear on this. But the Bible's also clear that I cannot separate my faith from my actions. James, in the same book, says faith without deeds is dead. It's a dead faith. It's worth nothing at all. So if I have faith, then you'll see it in how I treat others. If God has poured out his mercy on me, then I will be quick to pour out that mercy on others. Here's how Paul says it in Ephesians chapter four. Paul says this in verse 29. Don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs that it may benefit those who listen. So this whole idea of unwholesome talk is actually the word corrupt. The idea here is non-useful words. Don't let any non-useful words come out of your mouth. Now that takes a strong tongue. I'm not talking about like, hey, are we talking about sports? Hey, are we talking about the weather? Okay, those are just words. They're not really helpful or useful or hurtful. They're just words. But are there words coming out of your mouth that really aren't useful at all? How about this? Are you notorious for saying things like, I'm just the kind of person who tells it like it is? People know me. I'm just honest. Is that you? And when I was in Colorado, I hardly ever heard those phrases. I moved to Indiana, and I hear them all the stinking time. Like, I don't know if they're cultural. I don't know if it's just like an Indiana thing or an Avon thing or a Kingsway thing or just a thing. I don't know. Maybe I was in the wrong circles in Colorado. Like, I hardly ever heard these phrases, but I come out here, and all of a sudden, I hear people all the time like, well, you know, uh, I just speak my mind. Or I don't care what people think. I just speak the truth. And what we're really saying is I just use my words to let, let fly whatever's in my head good, bad, or otherwise. And because it's my view of the world, therefore, it must be true. What if it is unwholesome? Is it building others up? Literally, building others up means um, words that encourage them to become better. So is the truth that's flying out of my mouth, is it literally making them better? I mean, the truth does make me better. The Bible says, uh, better a wound from a friend than a kiss from an enemy. My wife loves to quote that to me when she corrects me. (laughs) She's right. Because we all need people in our lives who are willing to truly tell us the truth about how we come across, how others perceive us, how our words have impact on them, what, what their perception of our actions are. We need people in our lives who love us enough to speak that truth into our lives. But here's the thing. We know who those people are that love us enough because our bucket is full of the relationship with them. So when they do speak a truth into our lives, it's not brushed off as criticism. It's received from a friend in love. As a pastor, I could tell you, so if you ever want me to hear you, if the only time I've ever heard from you is to get an email sharply criticizing something I said or we did, and I've never heard anything encouraging from you, it's really hard to receive that. I'm just being honest. Maybe it's my own sinful heart. It's hard to receive that. It's true for all of us, isn't it? But when I have people in my lives, like our elders, my close friends, my wife, who love me and are pouring into me, and they say, Matt, you need to know this. Man, I take that and receive it. I don't always like it, you know? It's like eating a grapefruit. I know it's good for me, but it stinks. Like, can we put some sugar on that puppy? (laughs) But because I know they love me, I assume that they want what's best for me. Better a wound from a friend than a kiss from an enemy. How are your words 
flying out of your mouth in a way that builds other up for their benefit. And then lastly, how about this one? The whole idea of benefit, I don't know if you know this, in the Greek, it has this implication. It imparts grace on somebody. Are the words coming out of your mouth imparting grace? Grace, the same grace that in communion today, when you were taking the bread in the Jewish church, saying, Father, thank you for forgiving me. Thank you for giving me life. Thank you for redeeming me. Thank you for restoring me. Thank you for loving me. Are they? And are they coming out at a five to one ratio or a 25 to one ratio? So hopefully, there's some conviction in this for you because I'm gonna leave you with three really quick tips. Three really quick tips. How do I, what do I do with all this? Okay, so I'm convicted. I need to use better words. How? What does that look like? Well, number one, this is easy. Number one, assume the best. Assume the best. Anybody who's near me, staff, elders, anybody who's spent any time with me, my family, I say this all the time. I say this all the time. I don't always practice it all the time, but I, I, I say this all the time. Assume the best. What I mean by assume the best is this. Go ahead in your mind and create an understanding for the, somebody else's behavior or actions or words. Go ahead and make up a scenario in your head that is the best possible scenario. It bathes them in mercy and in grace. Here's just kind of some ways this might play out. Imagine for a moment when your spouse comes up to you or your friend comes up to you or a coworker comes up to you and they just lash out at you. And they, because see, that's when you want to get defensive. Oh, no, you didn't. <laughs> Let me tell you, it's just like this. And then every time you use the word just, be careful. There's not a lot of justice in there. And so you kind of let it fly in that moment, right? But instead, if you would just bite your tongue, right? That's what James is telling us to do. James says, be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to get angry. In other words, two ears, one mouth, use them proportionately. So be slow to speak. The first word that comes out of your mouth might not be the best choice. So you bite your tongue, and then in your brain, you make up a situation in your head that's the best, most grace-filled, mercy-filled understanding for what just happened. Let's say you come home and something is going on at home, and it has to do with something that happened, so you showed up. It's something you've talked about a billion times. We've talked about this. You know I hate when you do this. Go ahead and make up a scenario in your head that's the best understanding. You know what? I'll bet they were in a rush. I'll bet they were hurried. I'll bet they forgot. I'll bet something happened. One of the kids' arms fell off and they had to rush them to the doctor. Like, I bet there's a really good understanding for why they did that thing that they know drives me bonkers. And then when you've already decided to approach them in grace when you get there, if the truth isn't exactly where you thought it was, you've already started with grace. You've led with the best. Instead of assuming the worst, because here's what happens. When there's a gap in information for us, we have two choices. We could fill that gap with distrust and judgment, or we could fill that gap with trust and mercy. Most of us, almost all of us, fill the gap with the worst. And there's just not a lot of room there for the spirit to move because we're not offering to others what God has so graciously offered to us. All right, number two, number two. Give the gift of presence, P-R-E-S-E-N-C-E, -E -E, not, you know, Mother's Day present, all right? Presence, 
meaning be there. My last pastor used to say, you've heard me say before, wherever you are, be there. In fact, sometimes you'd say, be all there. Don't be there with your cell phone. Be there. We have lost the gift of communication. We don't know how to listen anymore. And I am guilty as charged. I'm terrible as I say all the time. You don't want me to do counseling with you because I'm a preacher, not a counselor. I'll do all the talking. And you don't trust me. Everybody's like, oh, Pastor, you can fix my problem. No, I'll, I'll talk at you for an hour like I'm doing right now. I make great on stage, terrible on one-on-one. And I have to grow in this all the time. All the time, I have to learn to bite my tongue and listen proportionately to what you're trying to say. Not assuming I know what you're gonna say before you say it. Not assuming I know where this is gonna go before it gets there, which I'm guilty of, but to truly dig in and listen to you, to understand your heart and what's bothering you and what you're trying to work through. And even if you're angry and flaring up and acting out in ways that are inappropriate, to kind of absorb that, bite my tongue, and to try to hear what's really going on so that I can love you through it. And if I need to repent, then to own that. But I have to first be present and hear you. I don't know what that was. I don't know what, <laughs> I don't know what just happened, but somebody said something. So the reality for most of us is we just don't have time in our lives to be interrupted, do we? We're too busy at work, we're too busy with sports, we're too busy with hobbies, we're too busy with clubs, we're too busy with cleaning, we're too busy with projects, we're too busy with whatever it is we think is on our checklist. So when somebody needs us, our kids, our spouse, our neighbors, we just don't have the margin to shut it down and be present. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a, a, a great theologian, a great man, I don't have time to talk much about him, but he wrote a great book on um, Christian community, and he says this, there is a kind of listening with half an ear that presumes already to know what the other person has to say. If I were to say nothing else today, you could connect with that, couldn't you? You know those people that when you sit down with them, they are not listening to one iota you've said. I can be guilty of this. So like some of you are sitting there going, yes, pastor, I know them well. I know. But the reality is people need us to sit and listen. He says, it is an impatient, inattentive listening that despises the brother and is only waiting for a chance to speak and thus get rid of the other person. Okay, think about your kids for a minute. The last time they came up and interrupted you, not saying that that's an appropriate behavior, they have to learn manners, correct, but when they interrupted your project, they interrupted something you were working on and they just wanted your attention, your affection, your delight. You didn't have time. You're too busy, so you quickly answer their questions, solve their problems so they could get out of your way. This is no fulfillment, he says, of our obligation, and it is certain that here, too, our attitude toward our brother only reflects our relationship to God. It is little wonder that we are no longer capable of the greatest service of listening that God has committed to us, that of hearing our brother's confession if we refuse to give ear to our brother on lesser subjects. Secular education today is aware that often a person can be helped merely by having someone who will listen to him seriously. And upon this insight, it has constructed its own soul therapy, which has attracted great numbers of people, including Christians. What he's saying, in case you missed it, is the whole counseling field, and we have many godly men and women in this field. I'm so thankful because we use so many of you to help other people coming to us who are hurting. But the whole reason it popped up as an employment opportunity is because we needed people in our community who would just stop their busy lives and listen to someone else's life. 
One of my mentors, you've heard me talk about him, Rick Sudsbury, yesterday he and I did the parent seminar together and uh, Rick shared, I've heard him say it before, but he shared publicly, so I feel like I could share publicly. His, his dad was fought in the Battle of the Bulge and came back with some PTSD. And uh, when Rick told him what he wanted to do, he wanted to go into the counseling field, his dad looked at him and said, why in the world would anybody want to pay you to tell, for them to tell you their business? Well, that was that generation and probably his own situation. But the reality is, 50 years ago, it wasn't even a field, really. I mean, you might say a priest maybe was kind of filling that role. People are craving authenticity. People are craving the opportunity to speak their hurt and their life to a listening ear. A few years ago, Kleenex, I believe it was, did some commercials for the Super Bowl where they just set up some couches and some cameras and some bright lights and had Kleenex out on a stand. And they took people like in a downtown area and just started asking them questions. And people in front of a camera that they had signed a waiver, they were going to show it to millions of people or whatever, just started weeping as they started talking about different hurts and pains and stuff in their life. And Kleenex is sitting there going, this is gold. We can make a ton of money on this. And I think God's going, no, this was the church. This was the point of the church have a group of people able to slow down their lives because they don't have anything to prove to anybody and God's gonna meet all their needs. They don't have to be so busy and just be, just be with each other. Bonhoeffer goes on and he says, um, but Christians have forgotten that the ministry of listening has been committed to them by him who is himself the great listener and whose work they should share. We should listen with the ears of God that we may speak the word of God. All right, last one, last one. Speak the truth in gracious love. There does come a moment where you must tell somebody the truth. You must. Even if it means hurting them because you love them. But when you do, you are bathing that conversation washing it, baptizing it, if you will, and so much mercy that they know you want what's best for them, that you're looking out for them, that you love them. You're not there to tell it like it is. You're not there to set them straight. You're there because you love them. And sometimes we have to do that firmly, but we always do it graciously. About a month or eh, about two months ago, uh, I felt the Holy Spirit convict me and I ignored him for a while and I didn't listen to him and I didn't obey and he just kept saying it because he's good like that. And uh, he told me, your wife needs more encouragement from you. And basically what the Holy Spirit was trying to say to me and I don't have a lot of time here left is, is uh, get out of your head and get into your mouth in this situation. So a lot of times I think things, I don't say them. And so I started making an intentional effort to just tell my wife how great she is and how amazing she is and how much I love her, how important she is and how precious she is to me. I'm just telling you guys, I saw my wife start to come alive. It was amazing. I just start to see some of these insecurities go away, and I just start to see her. In fact, one day I went in and I said it, and she looked at me and she goes, like what? (laughs) I think I might have been using the same phrase too much, you know, right? But I think she thought maybe I hadn't thought through it, and I just went like this and 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 like this. I looked at her, I said, you didn't think I had any, did you? <laughs> yeah, you clap. You didn't clap for me. And she said, No, I just wanted to hear it. And I wonder in your life how the people around you would come alive. 
I can tell you almost every marital struggle I have is because I've stopped using my life to build up the people closest to me. So then about a month after that, after I started practicing it, um, God convicted me even deeper, like, hey, you need to do this with your kids. About four or five years ago, there was a conference here in Indianapolis. It's actually here again. It's called the North American Christian Convention. And uh, there was a pastor, one of the largest churches in the U.S., running over 20,000 people. And uh, he was teaching on parenting. And he and his brother both lead large churches. Not quite that large for his brother, but they both lead large churches. So I'm thinking, hey, I'm a young guy. I got young kids. I'd like to learn from a guy who's figured this out. Like, how do you pastor a large church and have a family? And so I went. I'll never forget one of the things he said. Is he said, every when they were a kid, their mom would often, not every night necessarily, but their, their mom would often pray visionary prayers over them. He said, I don't know why we ended up in ministry, both my brother and I, and I don't, I don't know. All I know is my mom would often pray these prayers about what she saw in us and what she was asking God to do in us and through us. And so, I mean, I've done this on and off, but I just started making it intentional. Here's what I started doing. Like, so one of the ways that I serve my family is because my wife is a stay-at-home mom. She's a homeschool mom. She's very busy with the kids all the time. So I try to put the kids to bed at night. So I do the toothbrush thing and the face washer thing, and I'm terrible at the dental flossy thing and whatever. So, but I try to do all that, and then I try to put them in bed, and that's my, her chance to take a break. Like, it's her chance to be off at night. And so I do that at night, but when I lay the kids down, we pray together. We usually sing one song, and then I move in the other room and do the other kids. So... Right now, we got two in one room and one in the other. So I just started praying, not telling them, just praying these prayers of delight over them. Oh, God, thank you so much for Matthias. Thank you for making him my son. Oh, God, I love the way you made him. You tell us in the Bible, God, that, that, that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. Thank you, God, for these beautiful, big brown eyes that you've given him. I love when he looks at me with those eyes. God, I thank you for these big, strong legs that you've given this boy. When I see him jump high, God, it just brings such joy to my heart. Thank you, God, for his adventurous spirit and the way he loves to try new things. Father, I pray that you would grow that throughout his life. What's crazy is just over the last 30 days, I see my kids coming alive. And sometimes when we're not at night praying in bed, like last night, a little guy climbed up in my lap, sat as close to me as he could, looked me right in the face with those big brown eyes and just wanted to hear how I delight in him. And what would happen if you were to speak the truth in gracious love over those you love the most? I'm gonna close with this, but there's danger in closing with this because we've used this verse so many times. Most of you know it. You've been to weddings. You've, you've got it on a plaque in your house or something. That when I read it, you're gonna go, man, I already know it. But here's the thing. When I read it this week, like God hit me with a two by four. Man, even today, so there's some actions I need to take as a result of this verse. And I don't love that, right? I don't like when I'm up here getting convicted by my own sermons. I like it better when I have it all put together. But that's the word of God, man. It cuts both ways. It separates both spirit and flesh and tells me where I need to grow. So 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse one, it says this. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but I do not have love, I'm just a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and I can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can literally move mountains, but I do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast but do not have love, I gain nothing. Now, here's the part you've heard a Brazilian times. Love, real love, it's patient. Are your words being patient? Real love is kind. 
that doesn't envy, it doesn't boast, it is not proud. It does not dishonor others. How's your words doing? It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. And it keeps no record of wrongs. Most of the time when we have conflict in our words, it's because we've let the box of the junk we've been carrying around boil up and we're not letting it go. And in that moment, we're gonna let it fly, everything that they've ever done wrong. Even though we said we forgave them or it's in the past, even though we gave it to Jesus, oh no, right now this is my moment to hurt you with it. But love keeps no record of wrongs. Love has an empty box. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. Here's one that got me this week. I don't know how I've missed it all these years, but how about this one? Love always protects. Are your words protecting those close to you? Are they keeping them safe, or are they hurting them? It always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never In every conversation you have, you got two choices. See, when somebody comes up to you and they're really angry and they're ticked off at that person at work or their mom or their brother, whatever it is, you can pour gasoline on that fire and you can make that thing burn a relationship to the ground. This is how churches split. Or you can just go ahead and take up the other option. You can put the fire out. And you could say, you know what? Jesus says when I come to him, he will give me living water that'll make me never thirst again. Yes. I'm gonna pour that out. And I'm just gonna keep pouring it and pouring it and pouring it until that bucket is full. And when it is, I'm just gonna assume that the world's gonna poke a hole and another hole and another hole. And the more holes the world pokes, the more water I gotta pour out. And I'm just gonna keep putting out fires, pouring on water, encouraging and building up and knowing that this world needs more love, more love. Now, right now, you got a choice to make. See, if the Spirit is doing what I know he's doing, then he's already saying some stuff to you that you need to work on. Maybe there's somebody in your life, you need to pick up the phone or a text message and say, you know what, I need to say I'm sorry. I know I've not used my words to encourage you, to build you up, I love you. You're too important to me to use my words to hurt you. Here's the thing. I really want to challenge some of you to this. Just think about it. I don't even know who you are, but I really feel like Holy Spirit told me to say this. Jesus says, if you are making your sacrifice at the altar and you know somebody has something against you, leave your sacrifice, leave God in worship, and run to that person, be reconciled to them, then come back and communicate with God. If you have used your words to hurt or tear down or cut down somebody else, and they don't even know it. I want you to go to them this week, maybe even today's Mother's Day, so if you need to wait tomorrow, whatever. And I just want you to go to them and say, hey, the other day, I used my words to hurt you, and you didn't even know. And I'm sorry. You are an image bearer of the great high king, and I'll never do it again. And they're gonna go, what in the world are you talking about? And you're sitting here saying to yourself, why would I do that? I got away with it. They don't know. You didn't get away with anything. Because God knows. God knows, and he wants to offer you the mercy, and he's saying offer it to others first. Here's what I want to do. I want to pray a prayer of blessing, true blessing, not cursing over you. If you'll just join me in prayer, and we'll close up. Father.
I thank you for your word that corrects and rebukes and encourages us. God, we need your grace because every single one of us, I don't know anybody in this room who's free of charge on this one, God. Every single one of us, the tongue is a fire. It's like a rudder that controls a ship, man. It just, it can either bless our lives or ruin it. So God, I pray for everybody in this room right now who carries the wounds of this world, the wounds of a parent, the wounds of a spouse, the wounds of an enemy, the wounds of a friend that didn't intend to build up but to tear down and to hurt. God, may we define ourselves not by what others say but by what you say. And God, may we give that definition of life away to others, the living water. We ask all this in Jesus' name.